Hello and welcome back. We are in season one, episode two, and I cannot wait for us to dive into this today. Tangible Voices is a space where true voices from the past and present can be uncovered, shift our perspective, and resonate with our lives today. This podcast is brought to you by Anchor and made possible by One True Promotion. I am Carrie. I'm an educator and performer. How are you? For me, I'm recording this on June 26th, and this week has been crazy. It's been like upside down for me and almost everyone I know. I've been hearing about technology acting up, forgetting things, accidents, lack of focus, existential crises, you name it. Since quarantine started, I feel like whatever we're going through, we're going through as a collective whole, regardless of occupation or status, and it's amplified and incredibly visible since most of us are home. With all of the tension, sadness, and rage that we're experiencing, and I've been feeling quite a bit. Um, I've been doing my best just to try to be mindful, concentrating on doing or thinking just one thing at a time. And whatever I can't control, I yield. I try to pray about it and just keep moving. Next week, I hope to share a few more tips on managing and coping with anxiety as a bonus segment, so stay tuned. Season one is covering I Dream a World, a book that tells the stories of legendary African-American women in their own words. Today, we get to hear the reason why the late Brian Lanker, a white male photographer, desired to interview as many of these legendary African-American women as he could, and how that idea became a reality for him. Also, hear Barbara Summers' take on editing hours of valuable footage into the words we will hear over the next few weeks. This is season one, episode two, The Real History Lesson. Quick last minute note, I am a perfectionist, and if I stopped at this moment in my podcasting career to edit every single thing, then this podcast wouldn't even get done. So please excuse the times that I stumble over words, um, or for some reason today I was saying women instead of woman. I don't know why, but um, let this be a motivation for you other fellow perfectionists that it does not have to be perfect, just get your work out. I Dream a World. Photographs and interviews by Brian Lenker. Edited by Barbara Summers. Originally published in 1989. Prefaced by Brian Lenker. My life for the past two years has been spent in the living rooms, offices, kitchens, and backyards of some of the finest people it has ever been my privilege to encounter. 75 extraordinary individuals who allowed me to enter their homes and their hearts. My hope is that this project will allow readers and viewers to see something of the youth's lives and feel the strength of those hearts for a brief moment, and to be informed by them and inspired by them as I have. I have often been asked, why this project? Why would a white male set out to document the lives of 75 black women? It is a result of my own growing awareness of the vast contribution Black women have made to this country and society, a contribution that still seems to have gone largely unnoticed. As a photojournalist, I felt the need to prevent these historical lives from being forgotten. Many of the women opened the doors and many advanced America through the modern civil rights and women's movements. 
Three people in particular mark turning points in the development of my desire to embark on this project. Barbara Jordan, Alice Walker, and Priscilla Williams. I remember as if it were yesterday, sitting in front of the television screen, listening and watching Barbara Jordan deliver her speech to the Democratic National Convention in 1976 and coming away saying, why isn't she running for president? She was the person I wanted to see in the White House. Sometime later, I ran across a quotation from a speech she gave before the House of Representatives. In many ways, it sums up my feelings about this project. We the people. It's a very eloquent beginning. But when that document was completed on the 17th of September in 1787, I was not included in that we the people. I felt somehow for many years that George Washington and Alexander Hamilton just left me out by mistake. But through the process of amendment, interpretation, and court decision, I have finally been included in We the People. Barbara Jordan's political ideas were so strong that I not only wanted to include her in this project, I wanted the privilege of meeting her. In 1982, I read The Color Purple by Alice Walker. Her fiction opened my eyes to the reality of the lives that some women have lived. I realized that while white male society was driving down the boulevard of opportunity with only an occasional traffic light to contend with, these women often reached their goals by traveling a circuitous path adjacent to that boulevard, a pathway cluttered with the obstacles of racism, poverty, sexism, and more, making their route all but impassable. Her writing brought me out of my own narrow world and into the world of Black women. When I finished reading, my world was not the same. During the 1970s and 1980s, I developed a close friendship with Priscilla Williams, a remarkable human being who had helped in my wife's upbringing. When I think of Priscilla, I'm reminded of a line from Langston Hughes' poem of a mother talking to her son. She says, Life for me ain't been no crystal stare. These words address Priscilla's difficulties in life, too. And yet she added crystal to our home with her laughter and her love. By sharing some of the struggles from her own life, she taught me and my family a lot about survival, strength, dignity, and love. My own awareness of racism in our society evolved gradually because my childhood was generally sheltered from it. But not my naivete was met head on when I saw the civil rights movement come to life in my living room on television. I had no prior inkling that America was consumed by bigotry. In my innocence, I thought that Abraham Lincoln had made everyone equal. I had spent years with my hand over my heart believing one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. So when the glowing box in our living room disrupted all that I'd been taught, I was shocked. Black people were being attacked by dogs, clubs, and fire hoses. I was bewildered. My mother had instilled in us the belief that everyone was equal in the eyes of God. Didn't God tell everyone? When I went to college in the mid-60s, there were black people in all my classes and some in my circle of friends. The newspaper articles I continued to read made the struggles in the South seem worlds away from my pluralistic Southwestern campus. It was during this time I met a friend 
who would loom large in my life and in this project. He is Alan Dutton, who was my college photography instructor. He spent little time teaching me about f-stops and shutter speeds. Instead, he attempted to open my world and sensitize me to the deeper emotions of both myself and my photographic subjects. He asked that I use the camera as a probe, not only as a recorder of obvious visual information, so that the, the resulting paragraph might reveal more of the inner essence of the individual. I've strived to do this ever since. Several years later, when I was working for the Phoenix Gazette, I received the real history lesson. As in many other cities in America, riots protesting poor living conditions broke out in the housing projects of Phoenix, and I was assigned to photograph them. I vividly remember how I and another photographer, in the middle of the night, crouched for cover behind a short wall for protection, while bullets from a sniper's gun were ricocheting off a metal fence behind us. Meanwhile, on a nearby balcony several stories up, was a woman in curlers, dressed in a bra and khaki shorts, who danced to the words and music of Aretha Franklin. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Respect. Just a little bit. I thought it was a civil rights song and didn't find out until years later that the lyrics were the words of a woman appealing to her man. Though it was a life-threatening experience, I remember thinking at the time, yes, she deserves respect. More than that little bit Aretha was pleading for. Until the 70s, I was like most every other man I knew as far as sexism was concerned. It took the women's movement of that era and a failed marriage to enlighten me. Having children was no less informative as I came face to face with the fact that I wanted no less than for my daughters than I did for my son. As I lived through these times and felt the sting of racism and sexism, I realized that it was possible to fight for freedom for Black people, but not necessarily for women. It was indeed possible to fight to liberate women, but not Black people. Black women knew the binds of bigotry and the chains of chauvinism and sought release from both. In their lifetimes, the women in this book saw changes come to pass. Many pioneered the way and opened door after door, these are women who took a mighty step across the stage of America. My first task when I embarked on this project was to come up with a list of women to include. One could fill volumes and museums with candidates, so wide is the historical scope. Writers alone, of which several are portrayed, could fill their own volume. From a wealth of individuals, I drew up an initial list of perhaps 25 people who immediately came to mind, and then headed off to the Black Studies sections of various libraries for research materials. I found that some of the women I knew to be notable had little representation in these sections. You soon realize who wrote the history books. It wasn't women. For two years, John Frook, former news editor of Life magazine, scanned dozens of newspapers from around the nation for possible candidates. Yvonne Easton of Life made countless trips, and spent untold hours digging through files at the Schomburg Center in Harlem. The extensive files of Time, Inc. were made available by Pat Ryan of Life, and Yvonne also used them extensively. Perhaps the best research network was formed by the women themselves. Their lives and experiences reached deeper than any library shelves. Some, 
such as Marion Wright Edelman, expanded the project's scope by recommending individuals who otherwise almost certainly would have been overlooked. Organizations such as the National Coalition of 100 Black Women and the National Council of Negro Women went out of their way to help in their research. When all was said and done, only a few women declined to participate. Ella Fitzgerald could not participate because of her health. Aretha Franklin agreed to be included, but couldn't find the time. When I met each woman, I proceeded first with the interview, which gave us a chance to get to know each other. I had no set list of questions, but I was interested in each person's childhood and family. I asked about their earliest experiences with racism and sexism, and which seemed the more prevalent in their experience. What did they do to combat discrimination, given the legality of much of it, until the reforms of the 60s? Were they hopeful for more progress in their lifetimes? I was interested in their success, their art, and their failures as well. But I also let the interviews, which averaged three hours, go where the women wanted to take them. I discovered a world of wit and wisdom and philosophies of work and life. Next came the challenge of bringing that world and my newfound understanding of the woman into the photograph. This is always the hardest part. Normally, the portraits were taken on the next day in a session that lasted anywhere from 30 minutes to several hours. The amount of time spent photographing didn't usually have a direct influence on the success of the photograph. Where it took several hours for just the right light for the portrait of Rosa Parks, it took just a few brief minutes for everything to come together with Septima Clark. As the project progressed, an assumption I had made did not hold up. Though I wanted to come into these women's lives, I was not sure they would care to open their worlds and sometimes fragile pasts to me. I was pleased and surprised that not once in the course of two years of work was I ever left feeling alienated or distant because of my race and gender. I had also anticipated that the road for many of these women had been hard, but I was not prepared for the full brunt of that harshness. I was often left shocked by their experiences. There were times when some reached deep into their past, recalling some of the most painful memories of all. Tears were shared, but much laughter was shared as well. The outpouring of generosity was a wonderful too. I remember visiting Leah Chase, the Creole chief extraordinaire. After we had completed an early morning photographic session, she sat my two assistants and me down to a breakfast feast of sautéed quail with plum jelly, a Creole veal dish, spicy sausage, cheese grits, scrambled eggs, two different catfish dishes, homemade biscuits, herb tomatoes, and I'm sure I'm leaving out two more dishes. Her love and culinary expertise flowed freely. I had the privilege of two separate visits with Maya Angelou, who honored me by writing the book's foreword. From my research, I knew how talented she was in so many diverse areas, but I was constantly surprised how she would excuse herself from the work at hand and moments later, pull a truly delicious home-cooked meal out of a hat. As I think about the women I've met through this project, it strikes me how many of them grew up in strong, supportive families with the Black church playing a major role. Though others outside their families or communities were quick to try to limit their world, 
Their experiences inside the home instilled in them the conviction that they were not to be limited by anything. They were told they could do anything they chose if they only set their mind to it and worked hard. They were free to dream and were often driven to fulfill their dreams. In fact, all of the women in this book have dreamed of a world not only better for themselves, but for generations to come. A world where character and ability matter, not color or gender. As they dreamed that world, they acted on those dreams and they changed America. This celebration of sisters is not an attempt to elevate or lower any segment of society. It is merely an opportunity to savor the triumphs of the human spirit, a spirit that does not speak only a black history. My greatest lesson was that this is my history. This is American history. That was the preface to I Dream a World by Brian Leinker. Favorite quotes are in the description box of this particular podcast file. I personally loved his observation that he felt so welcome and included in these women's homes. My grandma Aretha would say, it tickles me because I wouldn't ever assume otherwise of these women we'll be reading about. The sacrifice and work that they put in on this earth is indicative of their dedication to all people being uplifted, enriched, and enlightened. So why not spread that welcome and love to a young white man who wanted to hear their story and take their picture? I thought to add in this editor's note by Barbara Summers, as it is key to understanding what we will hear of the worlds of history these women will share with us. The rest of this season really wouldn't make sense without Miss Summers' input. The challenge of editing I Dream a World was tremendous. I was invited into the lives of 75 magnificent women through interviews, photographs, and research materials created and collected by Brian Lanker, who had stepped through the looking glass outside race, gender, age, and class. My job, the privilege and pain of it, was to capture a life on a page of words. A page seemed a meager space for the wealth of events and observations each woman had to share. Reading through the transcripts of these interviews was like reading a natural literature, books of real-life adventure. In dialogue, Brian queried with an intellect as sensitive and probing as his eye. The talk was rich. Each woman had her language, her accent, her own speed and breathing. I could hear the thinking unfolding. I could feel sudden remembrance surface and crystalline expression. The refining process treated words as invaluable individual weights. Accurate tone, mood, and moral balance were important. Time, tense, and potential shifted constantly. Each woman spoke from a unique moment in her life, but the page took on a life of its own far beyond that moment. For lack of space, we had to leave out many stories, poignant ones like Leah Chase's memories of giving one's best even in the midst of poverty, and perversely dramatic ones, like that of the young Ellen Stewart being viciously punished when she showed up to claim a prize she had won by mail in a fashion design contest. We let go of many philosophical one-liners, short on words, but long on experience. From Charlene hunter Galt. I think it's terrific to aim higher than you can possibly reach. 
to Marva Collins. Our children are what they are taught, just as we are what we eat. Often, the abundance of rich anecdotes forced us to leave good material on the cutting room floor. It was very easy to see how history developed from observation through editing, carving flesh and blood heroes in stone. But as they spoke, the women of I Dream a World demanded that we record her story, a different version of who the fittest were that survived, how they did it, and why. I appreciated their openness, especially that of the grand older sisters who revealed heart and mind, although not all, and not all of the time, to a young white man enthusiastic with his discovery. Looking at these women, love is not hard to find. It pokes out in a pencil behind Miss Ruby Forsyth's ear, leaving her two hands free to hold a child apiece. It is woven into the kente cloth of Dr. Niara Sudarkasa's academic robes. It wafts with the beauty and sadness across the profile of the Lady Lena Horn. And love shelters all who come within Mother Hale's arms. Love was not hard to find in their words either. It seemed to be a key to their success. A truly beautifying discovery for me was to find so much love in anger. It was a fist-up, death-defying love that challenged the unfair conditions of life and muscled in on injustice as it nursed both sides of the nation. Valiant and vulnerable, these women were there. To recreate them as vividly as possible on the page and on their own terms was the challenge of life to literature. As an amateur writer and editor, I cannot imagine the difficult decisions that this editor had to make to achieve the results we will read. As she noticed, each woman had her language, her accent, her own speed and breathing. While we read, it will become apparent. So I cannot wait to delve into this book starting next week. That was more from I Dream a World, published by Stuart, Tabori, and Chang. Happy birthday to Shoket disc jockey and big brother extraordinaire subscribe to this podcast for great things to come and follow my instagram account tangible voices podcast for the latest on what i'm gonna do thank you all for listening and until next time remember that your voice has a power all its own